0: who or what is attacking the poor pigeon population of las vegas and then we travel to canada to a small mining town known as garson aliens land and give a young man very explicit orders and then they leave and then the story it's really weird today on dead rabbit radio hey everyone welcome back to another episode of dead rabbit radio i'm your host jason carpenter i'm having a great day hope you guys are having a great day too it's freezing cold up here i'm actually recording this in thermals and my care bear onesie let's go ahead and move on to our first story now our first story I actually tweeted out not too long ago on my break, so I'm not gonna hold back this surprise too long because the people who follow my Twitter at Dead Radio are like, "Hey, we already know where this story's going, so let's just do it." Let's just do it. December 2019. So this month, this year, we're in Las Vegas, Nevada. We're driving on the road in Jason Jalopy. We look to our left. Pigeon flies by. <laughs> Apparently, these pigeons are also distant relatives of the blob dissolving a kid. And then we look to our right. Another pigeon flies by. But this one is wearing a stylish hat. We look at each other, and then you force my head to look at the road. You're like, please just stay focused on the road. We park the car, so you don't have to worry about me watching where I'm driving. We start walking through Las Vegas. now. We see a bunch of, like, beautiful women and showgirls and, like, David Blaine or Chris Angel or whatever is, like, floating above the ground. But we ignore all that stuff. I'm still checking out the showgirls, but we try to ignore all of that stuff because we're on the hunt for some pigeons. Now, this is a 100% true story. There's a lot of photos of this. It's all over the news. There are pigeons. Somebody is putting little tiny hats on pigeons. Nobody knows who or Why? Or how? And that actually should be the easiest question to answer. Because that's my first question. Like, yes, who's doing it? I figure it's either like an art collective or a lunatic. It's kind of the same thing. But it, it's a somebody or a group. Why they're doing it. Maybe they're doing it for fun. Maybe they're doing it to like make the pigeons more popular. I don't know. But my biggest question is, how is it? Are they little strings attached to it? Are there? Because that's a big difference. If you're putting a little stringed hat on a pigeon and let it fly around, I don't care. Go nuts. Doesn't bug me at all. If you're gluing hats to pigeon heads, that's that's not cool. Like that's totally not cool. You heard it here first, guys. That rubber radio taking a stand. Do not glue hats to pigeon heads. I'm against that. That's my question. How are they doing this? People are trying to figure this out, though. It's a mystery. There's a group in Las Vegas called Lofty Hopes. Because there's a group for everything. I'm not knocking the group. I just find it bizarre that this group exists. There is a group for everything. Lofty Hopes is bills itself as a pigeon-positive movement. So they're very pro-pigeon. I don't know. Are there anti-pigeon groups out there? I guess that might just be society and or city dwellers. The Lofty Hopes is run by a woman named Mariah Hillman. And they're trying to get to the bottom of who's putting these hats on these pigeons. And they're telling people, if you see a pigeon with a hat on, immediately call us. We'll come down there. Now, what are you going to do? Like, yes. I'm like, if I call up your phone number, I'm not going to capture the pigeon. I'm not going to back it into a corner. I don't know why it has that hat. It may have been put on by a human. It may be a hyper-evolved pigeon, And went out and bought a nice little hat. I don't know. I'm not going to corner it. If I see a pigeon and I call you, by the time you get there, the pigeon's going to be gone. Now, their concern is that they don't know how these hats affect birds uh, vis-a-vis their predators. So, is it going to make them stand out more when a predator's hunting them? Is it going to give away their position? Now, my first guess is yes. If a pigeon is, say, a foot high, which is an awfully big pigeon, but just... Just for the sake of measurement. Okay, fine. If a pigeon is six inches tall and he's hiding behind a brush, and there's a giant cat chasing him—a regular sized cat to us, but to him a giant cat—he's a, he's a half a foot tall, and he's hiding behind a brush that is half a foot—a a bush, not not like a broom, half a foot tall. The cat won't see him. But then, if he's wearing a two inch hat, the cat will see the hat. Now we all know the relationship between cats and hats. Generally, they work well together. But so technically, then the cat could attack the pigeon wearing hats, the hat wearing pigeon. But then that's kind of stupid because the cat just smelled the pigeon. So it doesn't really matter what the pigeon looks like, because how many of the predators actually just go off the of smell? And if think about it this way, think about it this way. If you happen to be hunting, let's switch it. So a cat hunts a pigeon and we hunt, let's say, a bear. So you're walking through the woods, you have your rifle or your shotgun or whatever you use to kill giant giant monster animals. You're walking through the woods and you see a bear just minding its own business. So it's on the other side of a bush and you're like, oh great, I'm going to blow his brains out, take him home and do whatever I do, make a bearskin rug. And then he turns and faces you and he's wearing full clown makeup. What What do you, that is actually going to buy that creature some time. You're going to, somebody put the bear to sleep, slather it on full clown makeup, put the big red nose on him, let him, <laughs> let him wander off into the woods. And when you go to pull that trigger and the bear's like, Whoa? and he has a full on clown face, you're not going to open fire. You're going to be shocked. So I actually think that by putting this little hat on a pigeon, the cats, is for the past 10 million years, cats have been eating pigeons. And then one day, a cat is walking through Las Vegas. He turns, he sees that familiar outline. He smells that sweet, sweet pigeon meat. And he looks, and it's wearing a hat. The cat would be like, what is going? And then the bird flies away. So this might actually be beneficial to the pigeons. So Lofty Hopes. I would say, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens to the pigeon population. Unless someone's gluing hats to the... You know what's so funny is, like, all of that... You guys are probably... Your guys' probably biggest question is, who's doing this? Again, that doesn't seem to be such a big question for me. But that is an actually really good question. Who and how is my biggest question. But anyways, somebody is putting hats on pigeons. And maybe they're helping pigeons. Maybe... A hyper-evolved pigeon from the future has invented time travel and is going back and putting hats on the pigeons of today to ensure that his people aren't killed in the cat apocalypse of 2020. We'll never know, unless that actually happens, and then we'll figure out that the pigeon invented time travel. Let's go ahead and move on to our next story. Now, our next story is an interesting one. We are going to Garcon, Canada. The year is 1954. It's June 2nd. We're going to pull up to this mine shaft in the Jason Jalopy. We drove from Las Vegas. We're up here now. Now, This is a really bizarre story, and it's a bizarre story on two fronts. Let's go ahead and tell the story first. Garcon, Ontario is in Canada. It's basically a mining town. It's five miles south of a place called Sudbury, which is known as the nickel capital of the world. And all these things are going to become extremely important. This is a, such a weird story. There's a dude named Ennio La Sarza, 23-year-old man, Ennio LaSarza, Italian immigrant in Canada. He works as a miner, and he works as a painter as well at this mine in Garson. And one night he's there, it's actually not even night, it's like 5 p.m. It's barely evening. He's at the mine, and he sees an object in the distance. And he sees it start to dive bomb towards the ground. Towards him, and he's watching it just go faster and faster and faster. And he says it was going faster than the fastest jet he had ever seen. But before it hits the ground, it just begins to decelerate. And then lands. Very dramatic entrance. You really have to think. The UFO didn't have to do that. That wouldn't be standard. You wouldn't build a vehicle that that would be standard landing procedure. You almost think these aliens had to be show-offs or to scare him in some way. Why would you build a vehicle that has to approach the Earth as fast as possible and then slow down? It just seems like a waste of energy and, or and physics and the fact that it's super dangerous and all of these things. But anyways... He sees it, it speed up and then slow down right before it lands on the Earth. This saucer, it's a, it's a flying saucer. It's 25 feet in diameter. It has landing pads, little... Psh, 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 psh. Little landing gears come out. 1950 smoke effect shoots out. Psh. And the ship opens up and out step these aliens. He describes the aliens as being insectoid. They had six... He said it was a combination of arms and legs. They almost look like, you know how, like, a if you took a, a beetle or an ant. But these ones could stand up on two legs and have four arms available. Or, or stand up on four legs and have two arms available. It was They could use them for anything. It's six appendages, and they all look the same. With, like, claws. <laughs> claws where we would expect hands. And he said they almost closed... Uh, spasmodically, like, snap, 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 Truly alien. These things are 13 feet tall with one eye in the middle of what you would assume would be a face on what you would assume would be a head. It had, like, these weird kind of knobby head over the... It basically had, like, a big, flat, roundish insectoid-type body, like a potato bug type of thing. Six... Weird arms, legs, this bizarre head. One eye in the middle of this face. Here's a quote that was in... This story was really... This story... Okay, uh, it's really hard not to get ahead of myself, but the main source we have for this story is Project Blue Book. The official U.S. investigation into unidentified flying objects. And it's really... I I don't want to spoil it. So, what we see in Project Blue Book is this sentence. Three strange beings emerged from the craft. They were about 13 feet tall, greenish blue in color, and the face was a color combination he had never seen before. And it's funny, I've mentioned that on past episodes. How can you imagine something or describe something you've never seen before a color combination. I remember I was talking about, I, I was, when I was writing a science fiction book, there was a color called amber blue. It was equal amounts of blue and gold at the same time. It wasn't both. It was the same. It was like, a, it was something that in the characters in the story were completely, f- they, they saw it all the time. But if, when a human saw it, they would see it as either gold or blue or a mixture of both. But it was really, it's hard to describe because the color doesn't exist and 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 the and i guess um hp lovecraft has a similar story called like color out the color out of time or color out of space or something like that they're making a movie about it but describing a color that you can't describe that you've never seen that you don't understand this guy's looking at that i can make up a story about that and hp lovecraft can make a story up about that but this guy's actually sees these aliens get off the ship And their face was a color combination he had never seen before. Their bodies were the greenish blue. But their faces were something out of this world. So these aliens come down. And one of the creatures, which he assumed was the leader, scuttles towards him. Doesn't do a a nice little gray alien walk. We come in peace. It's like an insect. It's 5 p.m. again, which makes it, to me, creepier. The sun is just setting Life is still fairly normal at 5pm. Midnight, 3am, things are creepy. But at 5pm, you're you're hungry. You're ready to go home and, and watch some I Love Lucy and eat dinner. As the creature starts scuttling towards him, he turns to run and is immediately frozen in place. And that's when the conversation starts. There's a voice in his head. And it tells him to do something. Enio wakes up aliens are gone he runs to his office and tells his boss immediately i was just out by the mine these aliens came down the ship can't Tells the whole story and the the boss of the mine is like what in the world are you talking about about 10 minutes has passed it's about 5 10 5 20 now and he goes this happened and i felt the alien voice in my head and then i passed out And I took off running. I'm talking to you right now. He begins to alert the authorities. NEO, and I believe the boss was part of this as well. We're going to get into the story behind the story here. But NEO, he does contact like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Canadian Air Force, all of this stuff. I saw a UFO. This is what happened. These aliens came down. While this is being investigated, the number one question that I'm sure you have as well. Investigators come down. He tells a story. He goes, they asked me to do something. And then I fell asleep. And people go, what did they ask you to do? And NEO would start to tremble. And he would look at these men, military men, police officers, and say, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what they asked me to do. But I would never do it. I would never, ever, never, never, ever do it. He said, I told the aliens I would rather die than do that. And I was knocked unconscious. I woke up, they were gone. The officials are like, what did you say? And I'm not going to tell you what they asked me to do. I refuse to, but I would never do it. I would never, ever, I I just couldn't even imagine doing that. He actually begs the police to throw him in prison. Because he believes that he is a danger to humanity. Because if the aliens get him and force him to do what they wanted him to do, just lock me up in jail, man. Just lock me up in jail. It's the only place I'll be safe. And the fact that he won't say what they asked him to do makes the story more mysterious. So the first thing you look at is, is the story true? Now, there is only one site that really talks about this story. And I've, I've talked about these guys. I've done a lot of stuff. There is a website called Cryptopia. And Cryptopia has a podcast called the Cryptonaut Podcast. And from what it seems like, it seems like it's pretty much a one-man operation by a guy named Rob Morphy. This is the only website that talks about the Garcon invaders. So you go, it may it's creepypasta. Now, I've done a lot of stuff from Cryptopia. I do, and a lot of it checks out. I don't think I've ever come across a completely fake story on there. But... I'm looking into this stuff and I'm like why can't I find anything about this case except from this website. Now what's interesting is I kept digging, I kept digging, I kept digging. There is there is a newspaper in the area. Remember I said this was south of Sudbury, the nickel capital of the world? There is a newspaper in the area called the Sudbury Daily Star. And they did have a series of articles about UFO sightings. Some there was a website that happened to list every UFO Sighting that was printed in the Sudbury Daily Star, which seems like a very obscure website, and it, it really was. But there was a ton of them dating back to like 1914, and I came across a book that was published in 1956 that quoted the Sudbury Daily Star, saying that there were fireballs in the sky around Sudbury, which is only five miles away from um, Garson. And the idea was that these fireballs, these UFOs, was actually the Russians spying on the nickel capital of the world. Now, I'm not saying nickels as in they had a bunch of five-cent pieces. This is where most of the world gets their nickel. So this story gets to Project Blue Book in a bizarre way. Because we have to meet two people. We meet Elder Charles Beck. He's a minister. He's an African-American minister. He has a radio show on. This is back in the 1950s. He has a radio, sh- radio show on. He's releasing these gospel albums. He's a famous musician of the time. And there was a reporter working for the Sudbury Daily Star named Michael Bolton. Completely lost the history, obviously, because his name is Michael Bolton. When you type that in, all you get is the singer. So you have Elder Charles Beck and you have a guy named Michael Bolton writing for the Sudbury Daily Star. On July 9th, 1954, so a month after all of this happened, Elder Charles Beck and Michael Bolton meet up with Ennio, and they get him to tell the story on tape. And then, and after the story is recorded, Ennio has a nervous breakdown, and he goes, you gotta erase the tape, you gotta erase the tape. I made promises, I made promises not to tell the story. You gotta erase the tape. And Elder Charles Beck and Michael Bolton are kind of like, what? This is... Okay, okay, calm t- calm down, calm down. We'll erase the tape. We'll erase the tape. They figured they had took good enough notes, and in front of them, they erased the tape. It's very, very suspicious, obviously. As a skeptical person, you go, oh, that's very convenient that the only firsthand account was destroyed. But what happened was Elder Charles Beck and Michael Bolton then <laughs> what? such a funny name. But then they go on to Beck's radio show and retell the story from their memory. They go, listen, he told us to erase the tape because people knew the name. It wasn't like they were outing this guy, but they're like, he told us to destroy the tape. But this is what we remembered. And that's pretty much the story that I just told you. So how do these two guys get involved? Are these people important? Who is Elder Charles Beck? Michael Bolton, we know, is a reporter, but again, it's just disappeared. But why is this radio minister involved in this? And how is he contacting Project Blue Book? Did they, someone working for the U.S. government hear this radio show? Here's a quote from Project Blue Book on this case. The case is listed in Project Blue Book as spacecraft landing in Canada. And it's listed as being the first time this has ever happened in Canada. Aliens landing in Canada. This was the first time. Here's a quote. I am indebted for details to BSR associate Elder Charles Beck, a Buffalo, New York minister who travels considerably, uses, quote, saucer material in his radio broadcasts, and has had various interviews with Washington authorities on this subject. He's basically... Is he... Is he... (laughs) I don't want to use the term like a man in black, but he's almost like back when UFOs were still, the myth was still being created. This is only like nine years after Roswell. You have a guy who has a radio show. You have a minister who has this radio show who every so often tells a story about flying saucers and at the same time is traveling. It's almost like he's using his show as a cover. He's going on these revivals. He's going on these tours. He's taken his ministry across the country and at the same time investigating UFO landings to the point that authorities in Washington are talking with him. Who is this guy? Elder Charles Beck. When you look him up on Wikipedia, talks about he has a couple songs. He wrote a song called Winehead Willie Put That Bottle Down. The Memphis Flu, that's a song about the 1918 flu pandemic. But what in the world is a BSR associate, for one? And then he goes, yeah, thanks. This guy travels the country, investigates this stuff. What? Who is this dude? Lost to history. It's not mentioned anywhere else, but it, w- there is a facsimile of one page of Project Blue Book, on the Cryptopia website. That's where I'm getting a bulk of this information. Also, the question is, what, it, what would the aliens have to say to this guy? What could they have him do? This is how the Project Blue Book article starts off. Spacecraft landing in Canada. Quote, Interplanetary sabotage... This is a government document, by the way, unless this has been forged, which it would be an odd forgery because none of the- it's really hard to make these connections. But... Let's assume this document, let's assume this is actually from Project Blue Book, a government paper. Quote, Interplanetary sabotage with whole planets as the stake is a new concept, and one I feel will grow. So too, with the chain reacting of mineral and metal stock while still in the ground. The nuclear physics has been carefully checked by an authority. The facts, and my own speculative thinking about them, are quite in line with material given to us by GL. Have no idea who that is. By GL, and lately published in Round Robin. I hope the BSR will again scoop the Power and Pelf Simeons on this. What? What is BSR? Again, I'm sure someone who really knows about Project Blue Book could f- figure out what BSR is. What's Power and Pelf? I actually had to look that up. That was an old timey. Again, generally. It could be a forgery, it could be a fake, but a way you could tell that it's not fake is there'll be old terms in there. Power and pelf means dirty money. It's a very, very old-timey word. So I hope the BSR will again scoop the power and pelf simians on this. Simians as in apes, simians as in us. Who are the BSR, and why are they trying to scoop the corrupt people? The corrupt humans on this idea. The person, when he says speculative thoughts on this stuff, again, he says that the guy never says what the aliens wanted him to do, but he's standing around a nickel mine. He's outside the nickel capital. You have all of this nickel in this area. This is what the author of the Project Blue Book article thinks is going on. there a, a, Around this time, there was a theory of something called a cobalt bomb. Basically, it was a salted earth bomb. A salted bomb is what they called it. It was a bomb that was used to maximize nuclear fallout. Most bombs, nuclear bombs go off, destroy a bunch of buildings, kill a bunch of people. You want minimal fallout. So you can go and move your troops in and take over an area. A cobalt bomb would be maximum radioactive fallout. It would be to destroy an area for thousands of years. Here's his quote. It is conceivable, in terms of space being science at least, that the nickel in the nickel mine could be chain-reacted into cobalt-60 right in the ground. All it might need is some simple form of triggering fuse, i.e. a neutron emitter, to start a reaction. A spoonful of cobalt-60 is equal to all the radium ever produced or in existence in the world today. This is why the cobalt bomb is giving the world a case of king-sized jitters. So... The alien, this is the theory that they are putting forward in Project Blue Book. And this is kind of the theory that people believe in. Rob Morphy was leading towards this as well. And again, I got most of my research from him. I had to do a bunch of side other stuff. We'll get to that in a second. But they could have, the alien, the theory is this. The aliens wanted to put something down the mineshaft that would start a chain reaction that would basically irradiate the entire planet in one go. And the NEO said, I'm never going to do that and the aliens just kind of shut him down, and then he woke up, and the aliens were gone. Even in the Project Blue Book thing, he's going, I don't know if that's... I mean, technically, and he uses that term, space being science, at least, which is basically, he's saying, in the world of science fiction, if aliens can visit from another planet, they could possibly have some sort of device that could turn nickel to cobalt-60. They're close on the periodic table. It might be possible. If they did that, it would completely destroy the planet. It would irradiate the entire planet. We'd be dead. We have no way to stop it. And NEO just kind of disappears into history as well. We don't really find out what happened to him. We do know that he never changed his story. He continued to talk about this. In 1956, he was 23. You know, he he would be like 90 years old at this point. But he just kind of disappeared into history. And again, this story is so, it's not known at all. You can go through the show notes and you can try looking it up on your own, but you're going to have a very hard time finding anything about the Garcon invaders. Because I looked to verify the story over and over again. I did come across, like I said, that website that was a list of news articles involving UFOs in the Sudbury area. This is an interesting one. I did find the actual article referring to NEO's story, as well as 40 other articles from 1914 to 1977, of UFOs in this area. Sudbury has a population of about 50,000 people. 40 articles is a lot. And going back to 1914, before the UFO flap even started. So it does seem to be that there were a lot of UFO sightings. Project Blue Book says this is the first time aliens were seen there, but you can go back and see all these sightings of fireballs in the sky. Here's a, here's a quote. I know we're doing a lot of quotes on this, but I think it's important to get the first-hand accounts on these articles and these stories. Because this is really, if you haven't listened to the Kryptonaut podcast, which I haven't. But, if you had, ha- But I mean, if you haven't looked at this, you've never heard this information before. I've never heard this information before. I've been following this stuff, UFO stuff, since I was 12. This is a brand new story for me. It's absolutely bizarre that this story is not more out there. This might be one of the reasons why, though, because here's this quote, Squadron Leader King, there was a guy who works for the Royal Canadian Air Force, he said that he, con- here's the quote, he said that he conducted an investigation into the report, and this is regarding the Garcon story with NEO. he conducted an investigation into the report and, quote, actually found it to be fictitious. It just didn't cooperate with anything of what it should be, he commented. When asked what it should be, King commented that it is classified information. So he goes, listen, I don't believe this story is true. I don't think any of us saw these aliens. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't cooperate with anything that we know these things should be. The reporter goes, "What? (laughs) okay, so what should they be? And he just goes, that's classified. So they're obviously running into things up here. And so you have this young man go, listen, these aliens, these insects showed up and they told me something. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but they told me to do something awful. Please throw me in jail. And the Canadian Air Force's response is, we think you're lying because what we've heard from other people is different than what you're telling us. And then you go, well, what have you heard from other people? And they go, we're not going to tell you that. That's classified. So they're definitely having some sort of encounters up there. You have aliens who visit Earth talk to a young man, and give him an order that he refuses to do. Says he'd rather die than do it. You have a minister who has a popular Bible radio broadcast who may have been using it as a cover to travel around the Northern Hemisphere gathering information on UFOs for the government. You have the Royal Canadian Air Force saying... That the story's fictitious because it doesn't match what they already know to be true about aliens. And you have a story that is completely disappeared from modern UFO lore. There are so many stories that are provably false about aliens that are shilled every single day. And that's what makes these ones stand out. The stories that you don't hear about, yet have tons of evidence. The aliens themselves may not have landed, but there was so much investigation put into the story at the time to look into it. And all of that, it's not even been debunked, it's simply being ignored. We can talk about the Nazca Lines over and over and over again. That has been debunked. We know who made those, why they made them. It had nothing to do with aliens. I can guarantee you, you can type Nazca Lines into Google and you'll get more websites about aliens than you will about their actual function and why they were made. We know why they were made, how they were made, everything like that. But this story... You can find nothing. If it wasn't for Rob Morphy, if it wasn't for me just stumbling across his website, never would have known about this story. It was so documented and detailed at the time, and now it's pretty much lost. And is it lost because there's no meat to it? Is it lost because it's not true? Or is it lost because it contains an element That is so frightening. It's beyond ancient aliens and reptilians running the British government. It's an element of us having a weakness built into our planet. Like we're basically an organic Death Star. That we have been drilling holes into the Earth to dig out nickel. And what we've really been doing is building a weak point into our planet that at any point, anyone or anything with technology that we don't have, that we don't understand, can put something in there and destroy everything in the blink of an eye? Is the story so dangerous that it's been covered up simply by being ignored? What would have happened if a different man had been outside that mine at 5 p.m. on June 2nd, 1954? A weaker man. A man who didn't care about the fate of the world. Ennio may have faded into obscurity. He may have been ridiculed by the people he told his story to. But it's possible NEO actually saved the world. DeadRabbitRadio at is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash